Hello, and uh, welcome to Church at Five. Do you hear me? Is the microphone working? All right. Uh, my name is Stephen. <laughs> Sam says yes. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm part of the uh, Church of Five team, um, and I want to welcome you to uh, our service. Um, we're going to jump right into scripture, and we have a large chunk uh, scripture ahead of us today. Uh, but bear with me. There is um, a lot of gold to be found, I would say. The reading is from Daniel chapter 10 and chapter 11, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there, before me, was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to meet, help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the, the one who looked like a man, touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man, highly esteemed. He said, peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. 
and in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to welcome Brandon up for the sermon. All right. Wow. A lot of people here today. Good to see you all. I think uh, last week we had a little bit less, but the weather was really nice. Today is raining and everybody came in, so glad uh, you decided to spend your rainy day with us. Uh, welcome again to our series through the second half of Daniel. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we originally started Daniel back in October last year. Uh, but because there's kind of uh, this really distinct difference between the first and second half of the book, we took a little bit of break, had some Advent and some uh, Fruit of the Spirit, and now we're back in, beginning at chapter 7 we started. And we have been going through these visions, these revelations, these prophecies. We've looked at some of Daniel's prayers last week, and it, it's quite a dense last half of the book for sure. And so I want to give you a little bit of preparation of what we're about to get into the next few weeks before we get into what we'll look at today here in this text specifically. So the text today begins the recording of Daniel's final and arguably greatest vision, certainly the most lengthy and the most detailed vision. So chapter 10 here is going to just introduce us to the circumstances surrounding the vision. We're kind of getting an idea of what's going on, how the vision came to him, and a little bit of as to why. Chapter 11 is going to be the bulk of the vision, and we'll see its final conclusion in chapter 12. So chapter 10, 11, and 12 is meant to be seen as kind of one continuous vision. As we saw with chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, we see these kind of distinct individual visions. Uh, then we have a lot of time, some, sometimes a few years, sometimes uh, almost a decade or more that pass in between those, and now 10, 11, and 12 is really meant to be seen as one continuous vision, just to keep in mind as we're moving forward. Chapter 11 is going to be, be full of these very vivid details. We'll see how much we have time to get into. Uh, but one thing I want to just kind of let you know, and something that's true of actually all the way, certainly from chapter 8 on, the continuous theme is always going to be the future of Israel. And I say that because a lot of people have taken Daniel especially way out of context and applied it to all sorts of things. There was one man who was convinced Jesus was going to come back in the 1800s that didn't proved to be true, if you didn't know. And so we want to be careful, and we want to know what this text is written for, why it's written. And we see here, as the angel is talking to Daniel, he says, I'm, I'm here to tell you about the future of the people of Israel, about your people. So we want to keep that in mind as we're looking ahead to the end of the book. Now, all of the events depicted in this vision had not yet happened at the time they were revealed to Daniel. That's important to note as well. So for him, it's all the future. And that's important to note because for us, it's not necessarily the case. Some of these events depicted in the prophecy we're going to be looking at next week especially uh, have already come to pass. But some of them, not yet. Some of them still have not yet been fulfilled. And I want to give you an image that I'm giving you today because we have a lot to look at next week. So take it with you. Don't forget this. I think it will help you, and I hope that it will be a tool that helps you always in understanding biblical prophecy a little bit more clearly, because sometimes it can feel a bit uh, confusing when we look at how these things are ordered. So 
in order to kind of prepare you, let me give you this image. So imagine Daniel, if you will, as a man looking up at a set of mountains. Some of you will have heard this before. For others, it will be just this great epiphany, I hope. But this really helped me. This helped me in understanding, especially Daniel, which is a kind of notoriously confusing at times when we consider what has been fulfilled and what hasn't. So if we imagine Daniel looking up and he sees some mountain peaks, and what he's doing is he's, de- he's telling us what he sees. And he sees this peak here, and this one looks similar to that one, and then uh, far off in the distance he sees another one, uh, and they're all just kind of this one image that he's giving to us. But he doesn't know how far the mountains are apart. He doesn't know how deep the valleys might be between them. He's just telling us what he sees as this one image. And these peaks are the key, these kind of key moments in Israel's history. All of the visions are telling us key moments, sometimes key moments in world history with empires rising and falling and sometimes overlapping with how Israel fits into this. And so he's looking at this and he sees these various kind of events, these moments in Israel's history but he doesn't know how much time will happen in between them. He sees them all simultaneously as one image, and then he's recording this for us. Is that helpful for anybody? Like, some of you are like, eh, I don't know, maybe. It's all right. Maybe it'll sink in over the week that way. That's why I told you this week. You have time now to process it. And so, I, lest you kind of think, well, maybe he's just making this up, he's kind of grasping at straws, or maybe this is just for Daniel. Again, Daniel is one of the more more complicated ones to kind of untangle those uh, mountain peaks, if you will, to see which ones have been fulfilled and which one hasn't. But we see this idea all through Scripture. And I'll remind you of just two, and I'll use Jesus. He's usually a good example to turn to. Uh, One is in Matthew 24. I won't read it. You can read it later. Uh, Jesus is asked about when, talking about the end times, and he says, the disciples ask him, when are these things going to take place? And Jesus, in basically one line of thought, predicts or prophesies the destruction of the physical temple in Jerusalem that would happen in 70 AD. But then in the same thought, he prophesies about the Antichrist and also his second coming, all in this kind of one line of thought. And so we see this happen Quite often. Another one that I, I always find, find quite helpful is in Luke 4, 17 through 21, when Jesus is reading a prophecy about himself from Isaiah 53. And I find this one especially helpful because Jesus himself kind of helps us navigate this uh, because he stands up and he reads this prophecy which is written about himself, which he is then in that moment fulfilling that he has come and he stops reading. And where he stops reading is basically where he has kind of where the fulfillment of that prophecy is ended for him at that moment. But the very next phrase, the very next wording in Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus' second coming when he will come to judge. So these are just two examples. There's many, many more. I just want to kind of show you that that's how we're going to be navigating through to the end of the book. And I really want to give you this as a foundation as we move forward uh, in the next three weeks. But I also want to encourage you again, as I did last week, to not be quick to dismiss prophecy as unimportant or irrelevant to your life today. It's so easy for us to do that. It seems to have lost any kind of interest in a lot of Christianity here in the West. This is the Bible, guys. This is the Bible. The Bible is full of prophecy. We want to know this. 
We want to understand this. And I encourage you to try and grab hold of what you can. I'm not saying you're going to grab a hold of all of it. Try and grab a hold of what you can and seek God in prayer as Daniel himself did. What are we finding here? Through Actually, in almost all the prophecies, we see Daniel in prayer. And as he's in prayer, he's praying for what? For understanding, that he would understand the vision. And so we want to ask God to help us to understand these visions and these prophecies and what they mean for us today. And I'm not promising you that because we've gone through this nice little uh, six-week series here in the end of Daniel, that now you're going to have, be all kind of experts on biblical prophecy. Uh, that's not the goal here. What I do hope is that through this series, that you are, it helps you maybe, maybe just kind of sparks something that you'd be a little bit more open, a little bit more willing, a little bit hungrier to understand the fullness of God's Word, even prophecy, right? You guys still with me? All right, good. I know it's rainy outside. I just want to make sure you guys stay awake, stay a bit loose today. We're getting into some deep stuff. All that to say, as this kind of introduction for the next three weeks, what we're looking at today in this text, there's actually no pieces of the prophecy itself. So that's why you need to bring that with you next week. So don't forget it. There's no pieces of the prophecy itself in the text. But what we do have, what we do have is an incredibly unique glimpse into the true nature of reality. We get this glimpse of things that are going on that we can't perceive in our everyday life. We're given a small glimpse behind the curtain to see a peek into the spiritual realm. Daniel has an encounter with an angelic being. Now this is not unique in itself, right? All through the prophecies, they've been given to him by various Spiritual beings, angels, Michael, often. But here, it also gives us a small view of the greater reality. A greater reality than he himself may have previously been able to comprehend. Not just that there are angelic beings and that they're coming and speaking to him, but things that are going on behind the scenes all the time. That's what we're going to be talking about today. In verse 20, let me just kind of set this as the stage for as we go through the text. In verse 20, uh, he said, so he said to me, and this is uh, the angelic being speaking to Daniel, uh, do you know why I have come to you? Now, one thing I find interesting about this is that this is the end, and we know that Daniel's been quite moved. He's been, he's been on the ground. He's been trembling. Uh, he's been really affected. So I kind of, my, my kind of uh, paraphrasing, it's like I feel like the angels is like, you're still with me, Daniel. Are you still with me? Like I do to you guys sometimes. You guys still with me? He's like, do you, do you know why I came? All right, good. We're, all right, good. We're, we're still on track. But let's use this as kind of a, as a, as a driving force to ask ourselves the question, this, this question of, of why? why. First of all, why Daniel, we can ask. Or why are these truths revealed to Daniel now in the way that they are? And most importantly, what we'll conclude with today is why should we care about this? What should we learn from Daniel's experience here and this revelation he gets, not in the vision itself, but in this kind of glimpse into what's going on behind the scenes? So that's what we're going to be getting into today. Now to lay, first, before we get into it, let's lay down just a little bit of foundation, what's going on here. Verse 1 tells us that it's in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So we get a bit of an idea of what's going on time-wise. 
It's really interesting. So Daniel's probably retired at this point. I say that because in chapter 1, it says that Daniel continued in his position until the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and now it's the third. So just out of retirement, definitely older in his 80s. And if we cross-reference this with other books, though, like Nehemiah and Ezra, we can kind of know a little bit about what's going on. For one thing, we know that Israel has been given permission to return to Jerusalem to, re- to begin rebuilding the city. And we can first ask, well, what's, what's, we know Daniel's still in Babylon. What's he doing there? Why didn't he go back as well? Why didn't he join them and head home? Now, for one thing, he's in his 80s. It was quite a journey. The city was in ruins. That certainly might have played a factor. Uh, probably wasn't that inviting at the moment. Though I believe when we look at the character of Daniel, if he knew he was meant to go, no matter what it cost him, he would have packed his things and left. We can be tempted to think, well, you know, Daniel was a young man when he was taken from Jerusalem. He might, maybe he's forgotten a little bit about Jerusalem. I mean, he's been serving not just serving, but serving in high up positions, having a lot of authority and power in his positions for over 70 years. What's Jerusalem to him? Ah, but see, we know from the first half of the book that his heart was always towards Jerusalem. He even prayed toward Jerusalem three times a day. We know his heart, in his heart, Jerusalem was always his home. He always considered himself a foreigner. So he talked about in the first half of the book, we are foreigners in this land, and we should never be so rooted, as Daniel gives us in his example. So Daniel never forgot God. He never forgot God's people. He never ceased to continue to constantly be praying for God's people, praying for the, this, the, the ability for them to go back. We saw that with his prayer last week in chapter 9 as he's praying for repentance for the people that God would be merciful, that they can go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the city. And so now at this point, from that time, it's about four years maybe since from what we read last week. And so there was this crossover. It was shortly after that prayer that the okay was made for them to begin to go back. And I believe it's this that helps us to begin to understand why Daniel Why Daniel? Because we see his heart. We know who he is. We see this passionate man. In verse 2 and 3, we we see that he's been in mourning. He's been in prayer and fasting. He's he's not eating any, he's basically, he's turned off, you know, he's not eating any junk food. He's not watching any Netflix. He's not even taking a bath. Interesting choice. Basically restricting or restraining himself from all pleasantries of life. And we know This would have actually been, looking at some of the other information we have in the text, that this would have been through the time of Passover. So not only is he restraining himself and and fasting, which is a very difficult thing to do in itself, but he does it while everybody else is partying and celebrating. It's because his heart bled for the people of God. This is why Daniel. And a second thing we know about this time period is that Though the people have been allowed to return to Jerusalem, things are not going well. Things are not going smoothly. And I think it's the word of that that has brought Daniel to this point of weeping, mourning, fasting. He's like been praying and praying for God to open the door. Now the door's open and it seems like it's just not going to work out. Some of the people have, have 
come back. Some people who went to Jerusalem originally gave up, and they came back to Babylon. Many chose not to return to Jerusalem at all. Many had forgotten their true identity and the plans for rebuilding the city and for rebuilding God's temple were being thwarted, being fought against on all sides. Daniel's heart is broken for this. It's quite possible that Daniel was just too old. But what I believe is he remained in Babylon out of a conviction given to him by God. See, Daniel is a man of prayer. Daniel is a man of prayer. Behold, that we would all model ourselves to be people of prayer like Daniel was. And he's aware that he's been tasked with this great task of receiving these prophecies about the future of Israel, and we know it was at great cost. It was a burden to him. It troubled him. It was not difficult. It was not easy to receive these prophecies, as well as to be actively actively supporting God's work in Jerusalem through his prayers in Babylon. He knows that's what he's supposed to be doing, and that's what he is doing. That's what we find him doing at the beginning of this text. Daniel is doing the hidden and strategic work of the defense and the advance of God's kingdom through prayer. What an image. What a man of prayer. And here in the vision of chapter 11, the reality of the efforts and the effects of his prayer becomes more abundantly clear than maybe he ever could have imagined. I think that's why he's taken back so much upon hearing it. So let's look a little bit at that vision. How does it begin? So Daniel's standing by the river, hanging out with his guys, not sure what they're doing, maybe just uh, getting some sun, who knows, going for a walk, and then all of a sudden, something's going on. Something's happening. As soon as this vision begins to unfold, his friends, all the guys who are around him, they sense something and they take off running. They are just filled with dread and fear. So though they don't see what's happening, we can get an idea that they can't, they can't see with their eyes, but they sense the presence. They sense the presence that something is there. And it fills them with fear and causes them to run. We see the same image with Saul's conversion, uh, later Paul, uh, as he sees Christ, as he sees Jesus. He sees this great light. He hears Jesus' voice, but no one else hears, no one else sees Jesus. And they all run and leave him there alone. We see the same parallel. Let's read what he first sees in verse 5 through 6. I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of bronzed bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. No doubt Daniel was awestruck at this vision. It's no wonder he falls to the ground, unable to move at the sight of such a man. Now, the description that we read here is not meant to be literal. It's not literal. What we're seeing here is Daniel's, I would say, weak attempt to find the words to describe the beauty, to describe the power, to describe the presence of the figure before him. I imagine he thought about this a long time of how to describe what he was seeing and This was the best he could come up with. 
but we can only imagine it was greater than what is here in the text. I am sure the words failed him to truly describe what was before him. We see that in his actions and falling to his face. Who is this? I'm not getting into too much detail in uh, the debates that can rise about who this is. I would say one possibility, one strong and good possibility is that this is Jesus. I believe we see Jesus also in Daniel uh, when he is the fourth in the, f- in, the, uh, in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so it, this could be Jesus. And there's also good evidence that we see almost, uh, almost an exact or very similar depiction in Revelations 1, verses 12 through 15. I won't read. You can read it another time. When John sees Jesus in his glory. And he has this very similar depiction. Now, another argument I, could, I would say is very plausible is that this could be an angelic being that represents the glory and majesty of the Creator. And that's important because we see Daniel interacting with, with angels, with Michael, and he's not, this is not his reaction. This reaction is different. It's special. So it could be Jesus showing up in his glory, or it could be an angel that is representing the glory of God. And we see this idea from in Ezekiel when Ezekiel is talking also about images of angels who are reflecting the glory of God. So I didn't just make that up. Those are two possibilities. Now, I don't think that it's meant for us to kind of overanalyze. And so what, but I do want to point out one thing that I think is worth noting in this image. Keeping in mind that Daniel is mourning over his people. His heart is broken at how they have forgotten God, forgotten who God is, forgotten how God has called them to be in the land of Jerusalem. And here we see a figure dressed in white linen. And I imagine Daniel, as we know, he had it always, Jerusalem, always in his mind. Yes, last week we saw him quoting that he he remembered that it was the time of the sacrifice, even though he hadn't been around the temple during sacrifice for 60, 70 years, he remembered it well. And so this man, this figure, dressed in white linen, is this depiction of the high priest, something the high priest would wear as they entered the Holy of Holies. Perhaps this was meant to remind Daniel, to comfort Daniel of God's promises, of God's forgiveness and redemption for his people, and God's plan for his people. That it is a good plan and it would be fulfilled. This is why no matter who the figure was, Daniel saw the Lord. Whether it was Jesus or an angelic being representing the glory of God, he saw the Lord. Which is why he refers to him as my Lord. So as Daniel is standing alone in this moment, he's physically made weak, unable to move, unable to speak. To stand in the physical presence of the glory of God like that would knock any person to the ground. I want to make a quick note because I think it's worth noting in the day and age in which we live. Please be weary. Please hear me. Please be weary of anyone who says that they have just physically interacted with angelic beings or walked with Jesus physically as if they were just hanging out with an old friend as some have claimed, that they've seen Jesus in his glory. Now, no one has any hope to be in the presence of God without the redemption of Jesus Christ. But I tell you, 
I tell you, and hear me, if Jesus walked in through that door right now, or through the wall, as he might, as more his style, if Jesus walked in here right now, not one person in this room would be able to stay standing. Every one of us would bow before him. Even if he walked in this room physically and we couldn't see him, as we see the effect of the presence of God on those who didn't even see what was going on, they're running. They're like, they could sense the deep and powerful and authoritative presence. Jesus is God Almighty, and to stand in his presence would be an experience you would never forget. And I believe it would physically, physically affect your body. We have fallen bodies. This is not a resurrected body. This is, this is not what I want for eternity. This isn't a resurrected body. It's broken. It's flawed. And to stand in the presence of a holy, perfect, resurrected Jesus Christ would affect our physical bodies as we see it did with Daniel as he falls is trembling, unable to move, unable to speak without help. We can think of Jacob who walked away with a limp the rest of his days after wrestling with God. Or John in the book of Revelation who has a very similar reaction to Daniel here in this text. And John, of course, being the one whom Jesus loved. So if he can't stand in front of the presence of the resurrected, glorious Jesus... Jesus reveals, if Jesus reveals himself in his full glory, all would bow. I just want to give you guys that as a note to keep in mind today when people talk about this sometimes a bit frivolously. Now, that to lead to the comfort that we see in the words spoken to Daniel. Let's look at verse 11. So he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, trembling. He was able to stand, but still trembling. Now that highly esteemed can also be translated beloved, which I like much better. Daniel, you who are loved, you, you who are beloved by God, Chapter 9, we saw a similar wording from the angel Michael. You are highly esteemed. You are beloved. And I always want to take any opportunity I can to encourage you all that you need to know. Do you know how loved you are by God? How important it is to know that you are loved by God. To remember this because, as we're going to talk about prayer a little bit later, it affects your prayer life. It affects your ministry or your effectiveness in ministry to understand how much you are loved by God. Sometimes we can look at our own sin and feel as though I'm not worthy of a full portion of God's love. You know, I'll take the salvation, but I don't deserve more than that. I don't, ah, you know, thanks God for what I deserve, which is very little. Being quick to dismiss the idea of how much God really loves you Ah, but this is a mistake. The reality is that we are only able to love him, only able to give out from what he has put in. We love him because he first loved us. And our ability to love anyone flows out of our understanding of how much he loves us. So never lose this foundation. Even Daniel seems to need to be reminded. We saw that in chapter 9. We see it here. It's the very first thing he tells him. Daniel, you're loved. You're loved. What an encouragement for us. And then he continues in verse 12. Do not be afraid, Daniel. 
Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. Uh, This is the pivotal verse and the key to understanding chapter 10. So it was 21 days, right, that Daniel has been fasting and praying. And yet it was the very moment he began to pray that the answer from God was sent out. The very moment he began, the very first day. Why the long wait? We all want to ask in our times of prayer and seeking God. Why the long wait? Why does it take so long for the angel to arrive? Did he take the long, long way, took the scenic route? Did he get stuck in traffic? He tells us in verse 13, but the prince of the Persian kingdom, and that's not the physical prince, of course, but angelic being responsible for the Persian kingdom, resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, it's the angel Michael, of course, came to help me. It was the very moment. It was the very moment he began to seek the truth that God had sent out the answer. The very moment he began to seek the truth. And what we find out here is that the enemy didn't want him to know it. The enemy didn't want him to know the truth. He didn't want that message to get through. The devil sent out the big guns. This prince of Persia, we can imagine, is not some minion, and some demonic minion of, or, of sorts. It's He had authority and power and strength. So much so that this angel is is held back until he gets support from Michael. He put out the big guns to try and keep that message that God sent to him from arriving. Daniel is receiving a great revelation about the devil's plans. He doesn't want Daniel to know. He doesn't want his schemes to be revealed. He doesn't want the truth and this, he really doesn't want the truth, and this is still true today, that the Messiah will come, and for us, has come. He doesn't want that to be known, and he will do all he can to keep it from getting out. What if Daniel had given up? I wonder. What if Daniel had only prayed one day, or two, or maybe three, and then was like, I guess God's busy. I guess he doesn't really love me as much as I thought. As some of you do at times, you give up. You fall away. You begin to doubt yourself. You begin, because you're trusting in yourself in the first place. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in Christ. Trust in His strength. Don't give up. Daniel didn't. And now Daniel is getting a small glimpse at just how tremendously important faithful prayer is. There is a reality beyond this world. Beyond what we can sense, see with our eyes, feel with our hands. There's something more beyond what we can sense. And that reality is more real than this one. It's more real than this one. It has to be. That's eternal. And I don't believe anyone could argue that this is temporal. That's eternal. This is temporal. We're not going to live forever here. That's the real reality. And yet they are clearly intertwined so that when we pray, when Daniel prayed, it had a physical effect on the spiritual realm. Whoa. Not only is it real, 
but it's intertwined with our own. We see here a vital biblical insight into the nature, the true nature of reality. We don't need to overthink this. Don't, don't like to take it to the extreme and get, you know, it can get really weird when people talk about this stuff. We don't, it doesn't need to become too fantastical. And when it does, we're always, people who talk about this too much, they're always relying on assumptions. They're taking these glimpses we have and then filling in the blanks themselves. That's not, we, want, we don't want to do that. That's foolish and dangerous. But equally, we don't want to be, it would be foolish to just dismiss it as unimportant or pure fantasy. Daniel just made it up. It's not real. That would kind of cave in a lot of what we believe in. There are angelic beings. Some who fight for truth in the kingdom of God, and there are angelic beings that will do all that they can to thwart the plans of God, to twist the truth of God, and to corrupt and confuse the people of God. They exist. In this text, we get a glimpse that there are various types of angelic beings, various ranks. We see this all through the New Testament as well. Colossians and Jesus himself mentioning different powers, different dominions. And so here we see this image of the prince of of Persia, the prince of Greece, titles given to these demonic powers, these demonic beings, these angelic beings for the darkness, if you will. But we also see the other side. In verse 21, Michael, it says, Michael, your prince, and I'll just cross-reference that with chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, Michael, the great prince who protects your people. So we see here that Michael is also has a title. He also has a ranking as an angel given authority over the people of Israel. So here's the glimpse that we have. There's more than this physical world. What do we do with this? That's the first half of the sermon. You guys ready for the second half? Still with me? All right, here we go. Why do we need to know this? What do we do with it? Let me leave you guys with four points today. Four, not three, four. Four points things that we can learn from these truths, just to have an awareness. And I believe it will help us. It will empower us. It will strengthen us and remind us of our role in all of this. So number one, number one is the events of world history cannot be merely interpreted through the historian. There's more going on. There's clearly more that's been going on the whole time. And I'm reminded of another glimpse into the spiritual realm and warfare that is constantly happening around us. And one of, one, one of the images I find really fascinating in 2 Kings chapter 6. So here, just a tiny bit of background. Elisha, he's standing with his servant who's trembling. There's a great army approaching, and the servant is terrified. They have no chance of winning by any human standard. And here in 2 Kings 6, verse 17, and Elijah prayed, and I'm going to just say this the way I read it. You know, when you read out loud, you're kind of interpreting a little bit, but I read this as, open his eyes. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Open his eyes that he may see. And here's what happens next. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked up and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Elijah saw it the whole time. 
He knew what was going on. He knew that the, whatever the circumstance looked like on the outside, there's more than to what meets the eye. And he allows, through his prayer, the servant to be able to join in, to be able to see what's really going on, the reality of what's going on. The reality of the, this cosmic battle that is constantly waging. And we can imagine that these are just glimpses again. But it doesn't make it less real. Our inability to see them or to fully grasp them doesn't make it less true. Just as if I close my eyes right now, it doesn't mean you cease to exist. It's real whether we see it or not. And here we have this example where Elijah saw it. And then God opened the eyes of the servant. Didn't make these things manifest. They were always there. He just opened his eyes. And in this idea of this kind of constant battle that's happening throughout history, I found this quote. It's a long one. Stay with me. If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sorry, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict wages. Our earthly struggles drone in its backlash. It's really, I found that very vivid imagery to think about. These battles are always waging. And we see this in verse 20. It says, soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. The battle continues. I'm here. I broke through. Michael's back there, probably still fighting. I'm going to tell you what is written in the book of truth, and then I'm headed back to battle. What an image. We can imagine that our human conflicts are actually reflections of this older, more ruthless conflict as old as time itself between God and the kingdom of darkness. All of human history has been intertwined with both the physical and spiritual so that's the first point. This is the reality. Second thing to take with you today is that all Christians, all Christians are inevitably caught up in the spiritual conflict. We're all caught up into this. Whether you are aware of it or not, whether you believe it or not, or accept it or not, it's part of our reality as Christians. Daniel himself seems to be taken back a little bit at the reality of what's really going on as he's praying, becoming speechless. Because Daniel, Daniel had his focus, right? His heart is set on praying for the people of God to return to Jerusalem. He's praying against anything that would try and prevent God's people from rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city. And now for a brief moment, the curtain has been pulled back to reveal what he is actually involved in. What he's actually involved in when he's been there on his knees in prayer. This is what's really been going on the whole time. Great conflicts and battle. As he prays and intercedes for the people of Israel. He has been drawn into this battle. We've entered into a fight. And God 
God has given us rich blessings in the spiritual realm, it says in Ephesians 1. And in Ephesians 6, 12, we know that our, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. We're in the battle. We've been drawn in when we belong to Christ. Our prayers are going up and affecting a real battle taking place in the spiritual realm. That's, we're not, I'm not fighting you guys. We're not fighting each other. We're not fighting people. We're fighting against these forces behind these things. And there may be no more significant place to keep this in mind than when we're praying for the lost, praying for those who don't know the truth. Because you think they don't know the truth simply because they, we didn't say it nicely enough? No, they're being blinded. And we know that from 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. For, sorry, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The enemy is at work constantly trying to keep people blind to the truth, keeping the lost lost that they would never know who Christ is, that they would never see the gospel, because to see the gospel is to see Christ. Therefore, we need to be prepared to go into battle. This is why it's important to know this, because if you don't know it and you pretend like it doesn't exist and you pretend like it doesn't matter, then you're just, the devil's just not going to be that worried about you. Ah, but if we all took on this truth, we could go into battle prepared and have the right tools. What tools do we need? Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, right? That's here. What we're looking at here, what we see, our senses. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. When the devil has his blinders on somebody, we can pray against that, that they would be able to see the truth. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every uh, pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. These are tools we have. This and actually, in verse 7, I won't read, but he goes on. It's a different translation, but I like it better. It says, and are you still looking merely at outward appearances? After he just went through all this. What is he saying there? Are we saying, did you think that this was it? Did you think that you're just going to believe and, you know, you go to church and it's just all night? Did you not realize there's something more? That there's more to reality than what you can taste and feel and touch and see? There's more going on. And it's important to be aware of this because we don't want to find ourselves fighting a spiritual battle with a pocket knife. Not having the right weapons, not having the right tools. We need to put on the right armor to fight. We need the right weapons. And I would encourage you to read through the last part of Ephesians 6 and put on the full armor of God as it's depicted that this shouldn't be something that freaks you out or makes you feel fear because we know we are in Christ and he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world and we can put on the full armor of God 
And when we do, the enemy cannot affect us when we are prepared. Because we're in battle. Let's be prepared. So first, sorry, uh, that's the second point. The third point to leave with is that genuine faithful prayer, our greatest tool, has great power and influence in the spiritual realm more than we can never fully know. Daniel's getting this mere glimpse of the effect of his prayer and how his prayer is affecting this battle that will then affect human history. Never underestimate the power and authority that prayer has. And when you pray, know that it's not just, and it is this, but it's not just you saying words to God. It's not just you letting Him know about your worries and your problems When we pray with authority, when we pray with power, when we pray believing that we are heard because we're heard because of of what Christ has done for us, we can come to the Father, know that it has power and it is our absolute greatest weapon against the enemy. Because let me tell you, you can't beat the devil in a fist fight. And no matter how smart or clever you think you are, you're not going to outwit him. He's been around a lot longer than you. He knows a few things. You're not going to outwit him. You're not going to beat him up. What are you going to do? Pray! Which is why the devil attacks prayer more than anything else to try to keep us feeling weak in our prayer life, keeping us from praying, distracting us with everything we can possibly put in front of us. Oh, that we would pray less, he says. (laughs) Never underestimate the power and authority of your prayer. It is our greatest weapon. But two things I would just want to quickly mention when we talk about the power of prayer so that we would not misinterpret this principle. First is that the power does not come from the one who is praying, and it does not come from the words themselves. It's not magic. It's not a, you know, if you say the right words and, you know, have it in the right, you know, right on a a beautiful sunset and you're feeling teary when you do, and then God's going to hear you greater than if you pray on your way to work. It's not you, and it's not the words. Let me confirm that from 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's us. Weak, fragile jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Daniel's on his face in the presence of God. He knows his weakness. And the strength of his prayer is not in himself, but in his faith in who God is. God is the faithful one. As he said said many times last week in chapter 9, I'm a sinner, but you are faithful. That's what I base my prayer on. The angel doesn't tell Daniel, hey man, since you were really confident in your prayer and it was really well worded, here I am in response. No. He says the moment you humbled yourself, the moment you humbled yourself, It's all your brokenness. It's all your sin. The moment you humbled yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. Our our power in prayer comes through our weakness. In our weakness, he becomes our strength, which is also kind of the second point, is that the prayers of power are always the prayers of the righteous. As James says in James 5, 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So know that you are 
the righteousness of God in Christ today. Not because of you, but because of him. That you are a sinner, but he strengthens you through his forgiveness. When you really grasp that, your prayers will be that much more effective and powerful. Your genuine, faithful prayer has power, so don't stop praying for anything. Number four, in closing, sorry, we went a bit long today. There was a lot to say, guys. Number four, Daniel stood alone, but he was not alone. Daniel stood alone, but he was not alone. To that, I want to encourage you when we're talking about prayer, it's so important to be alone with God sometimes. It's so important. We want to pray together. We want to be gathering together. Amen, amen, amen. But are you praying when you're alone too? Are you spending time alone, just you and God? All those around him had fled, and he's standing there alone. But he's not alone. Just as he stood alone, probably on his knees, as he fasted for 21 days, praying to God. Never underestimate the power and effectiveness of simply being alone with God. Make time for it. And if Daniel can pray three times a day, who also helped lead, was second in command, leading an entire empire, you're not too busy. You're not too busy. Ah, but I have studies, I've got exams coming. You're not too busy. There's no way anyone in this room is as busy as Daniel. No way. Unless you're leading an empire on the side and making time to come here today. Thanks for joining us. No. You're not as busy as Daniel. Make time to be alone with God. Be alone with God. And when you're alone with God in prayer, you're never alone. When you're alone with God in prayer, you're never alone. Sometimes you might feel alone. Sometimes you might feel like, I don't know, I don't sense anything. I'm not, last time I had this great kind of emotion that ran over me, and this time I feel nothing. Man, trust in God's faithfulness. Not in yours. Not in your feelings. Not in the experience. Trust in his faithfulness. I'm humbling myself. I'm coming before you. I know you are with me. I do wonder if Daniel questioned, had moments of doubt as he prayed for 21 days with no response. Whatever he felt, whatever he thought, he did not stop to pray. He continued. And I encourage you to do the same. When we set our hearts to gain understanding, to know God's truth, when we humble ourselves before God and we seek Him in prayer, Your words are heard, and he will come in response to them. If you take one thing away, don't let the devil deceive you. Your prayers matter, and they have power, and they are physically affecting the furthering of the kingdom of God. So let's pray every day, and let's pray now. As we close, I'll invite the band to come up. Father, we thank you that you hear us today. You hear our prayers. You are with us now in our midst. You have a purpose and a plan for each and every one of us here today. Some of us may go on to do mighty things for you. Some of us may go on to do, to found great ministries. Some of us, the greatest amongst us, might be called to spend hours alone with you in prayer. Oh, that we would have more that are called to pray. 
more that are called to stand firm and be faithful in prayer day after day because there is no furthering of your kingdom without prayer warriors who are praying consistently, praying with full humility, praying with complete trust that your work will be done. Let us be a people in this church that pray for our city, that pray for the lost, that pray against anything that would try to prevent the furthering of your kingdom here in this city. Inspire us, Father. Inspire us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand if you'd like. We're going to have a song of worship before we close our service.